Welcome to another bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home, this time with someone that you hear all the time on the podcast because I quote from them all the time. Uh, ben Smith is the founder of Semaphore, which you know I've been quoting from a lot over the last few months. He's been a New York Times columnist. He was a longtime head muckety-muck at BuzzFeed News. He was at Political Re- Real Heads. Remember him as a New York politics blogger. Um, but he has a new book out called um, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and the Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. Ben, welcome to the pod. It's, it's, been a, it's been long overdue. Thanks so much for having me. I didn't realize we went that far back on the internet, actually, to the New York politics stuff. Okay, well, okay. <laughs> I, I, I told you offline that I thought that this book, I knew you're, you had a book coming out, and I thought it was maybe some vague thought leadership thingy, you know. Oh, no. No, but I'm like a thought t- follower. Right. No, no, no. You told Neelai that this is a book about our childhoods. And dude, <laughs> I, listen, this is very near and dear to my heart because I've always been based here in New York City. And so, you know, like I moved here in 2002 for the first time. So even though I've been in tech, like digital media is sort of how I experienced the tech industry here in the early 2000s. Like my startups were always non-media plays, but you know, my friends, my colleagues were all in digital media. So, you know, I was listening to the the podcast with with Kafka that you did with Denton and and Jonah Peretti, and you all kept calling it a scene, but like it was, it was, it was. There was so much energy. People were doing so many interesting things. Like, so let's start there. Let's describe the scene, the golden era of of digital media that that this book describes. Yeah, and you know. Um, yeah, it's funny. That's I mean, it's it's a scene I wasn't totally part of. Like I was blogging about New York politics, and I was in City Hall, um, nearby. But I was, but and and I was like actually copying a lot of what was happening on blogs. But I don't want to sort of claim stolen valor here. I didn't get invited to the parties, um, but I was super interested in in what was happening. Yeah, in 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 Lower Manhattan around. Gawker, BuzzFeed, Insider, Huffington Post, um, some of what would become Vox Media. And really what it was, was a bunch of people who some kind of considered themselves journalists, some didn't, taking these new tools of very simple publishing tools called blogs and, and you know, talking to each other on the internet all day about what was happening, basically. Um, and then also, you know, hanging out together every night at the same four bars in lower Manhattan. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, the, I sort of wrote the book about two of them who both, again, like basically lived across Houston street from each other, uh, Nick Denton, who, um, had come a, a British journalist who had kind of fallen in love with, with, with blogging and Jonah Peretti, this Californian who had, um, sort of happened into w- what we now call virality when he was a grad student at MIT and he kind of pulled a weird prank and forwarded it to some friends. Um, this, this sort of famous story about, uh, him trying to put the word sweatshop on a Nike sneaker and having this long earnest conversation with a customer service representative and then, and then forwarding that to, to a few friends and watching it go absolutely everywhere. Um, yeah. And, and the two of them, I think both actually did have incredibly large ambitions and really did see, wow, this is going to like thought that this would, you know, sort of become the media business and, and scale and make lots of money in a way that like, I think most of the people who were blogging and drinking downtown really didn't like they were just having fun and making culture. 
Yeah, it, I mean, and, and again, I'm going to put this in the context of, you know, I've, for the Internet History Podcast, spoken a lot about how in the Valley from like 2001-ish to 2004, it's kind of dead. Um, but in New York, it kind of wasn't, and it was specifically because of things like Gawker I'm, and the sense that there were there was a community, there was a scene. You, you, you could see Nick every day at Balthazar, you know, like m- making things happen. And and um, I, there was a lot of layoffs here in the city, you know, from the, the post 9-11 recession and stuff like that. But again, it was that sense here in New York sooner than it happened in Web 2.0 out in the Valley where... Young people can like get their start, work their way off up the first rungs of the ladder in these sort of digital media startups that kind of didn't die. I mean, DoubleClick, you know, everybody's stock went down, but DoubleClick was still around and, and there was still stuff happening in Silicon Alley here. So I just remember this scene sort of reviving sooner than than the Valley scene in the in the 2.0 era. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and there was even there was this idea that wow, maybe the center of innovation and venture capital is is moving to New York, which right. in retrospect seems totally ludicrous. Etsy gets founded, and um, or Square, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. these were kind of media. These are sort of you know businesses that were like closer to media, closer to culture. Um, and you know, of course, like this is after nine eleven. It's the run up to the Iraq War. News is very contested and rich um, and important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, again, it's. You sort of have to put your head back into this moment, and also, I think you know, the mainstream media, particularly after the Iraq War, is very discredited. Like people, real a lot of regular people are genuinely like, "This all sucks." The New York Times sucks. CBS News sucks. We want something. We're at least open to some totally alternative thing. And by the way, we're all using in our real lives these digital tools that these big media companies just have totally not figured out. You know, we're we're kind of freestyling here because I was going to get to this later. But years ago, I interviewed Josh Marshall of of TPM for the uh, Internet History Podcast, and I don't think I framed the question right to him. This was like five years ago, so even before recent events and things like that. And I might not frame this the right way now, but you know, famously, people like to say that that Gawker sort of created snark, like the the tone that social media and modern media sort of adopted later. But the point I made to Josh is what you just said, which was 2003, 2004, the run-up to the Iraq War. The way that, again, if bloggers are sort of, you know, crashing the gates, um, sort of the the premise that a lot of folks, bloggers like you, bloggers like Denton, bloggers like Josh Marshall, the premise that they sort of crash the gates with is, we're going to tell you the real truth. The truth that the mainstream <laughs> won't tell you. And now fast forward 20 years, like, is that the, the real conceit that this era sort of bequeathed to the internet and the media of um, don't believe what uh, sheeple, don't believe what the mainstream tells you. Trust me, guy that you hadn't heard of six months ago. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's like an eternal thing. I don't think that we were the first people ever to say that, but it coincided with the rise of this digital technology that like allowed you to say that at scale, not just in you know Ramparts magazine, um, and and to suddenly look like you were really challenging these big institutions and reaching just as many people as them. Again, another freestyle here is 
I've I've thought also that this era was sort of like the last gasp of Gen X. I think you and I are roughly the same age. I'm 45. Like the 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 early blogs really came out of that sort of zine sort of thing from the 90s and like and and conversely I would I would argue that you know BuzzFeed sort of captured was the first to capture the millennial zeitgeist right but so like that era I feel like is the last gasp of, of sort of the DIY Gen X ethos does that does that gel with yeah, you yeah and Gawker certainly imbi- it had this kind of like indie rock you know, anti, I mean, yeah, yes, was sort of opposed to mainstream culture, opposed to sort of selling out in a very, in a very like specifically Gen X way, for sure. So, uh, to bring this back to the the story of the book, but, but your story in it, because actually the first few chapters of the book, you're not in it. Like the book is sort of constructed almost like it's an old school press baron sort of rivalry between Nick Denton and, and Jonah Preddy. But, um, you are there in the early 2000s doing New York City political blogging, but then you go off to Politico, which again sort of comes out of the same sort of energy and milieu. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Politico and The Verge, actually, in particular, were among the first to sort of see what the bloggers were doing and say, like, oh, like you could just use the same like digital tools. Again, these sort of painfully simple publishing tools and stick something that looks a little more like standard political journalism into them, just make it faster and more incremental. And that, you know, that, and, and, and essentially, yeah, sort of started this kind of convergence between legacy and digital media. And also started shifting away from the idea that essentially like blogs and oral commentary, that, that what bloggers were doing was, was commenting on and attacking the mainstream media as opposed to competing directly with it. So, uh, putting putting my I was kind of there hat on in my in my recollection the chronology is that you know Gawker starts to get big in 2003 ish uh, 2004 to 2006 is sort of like the 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 age of the indie bloggers like at least for the tech site like GigaOM and and what was Richard McManus's Read Write Web and things like that and um, but then they're they're kind of professionalizing but it's the the social media stuff you know cuz facebook didn't open up to beyond um uh colleges till 2007 i think right and and right. so then that's around when twitter gets started and stuff like that so from having been there and being trying to do this professionally do you remember a period of where it's just we're 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 just out on the web and then all of a sudden this social media energy takes over and sort of changes the game yeah, I remember it really vividly. And I think so right, social media and Facebook in particular in those early years really weren't there were it was a parallel universe. It was for something different. It was for communicating with, keeping up with your friends, and it wasn't for talking about like public sto- stuff. Um and and right, Twitter launches in 06, Facebook goes wide in 07, but the, but they don't immediately catch on and take over. I think maybe particularly I think Twitter and particularly in the tech press and the tech business gets more traction faster. But like and, and just Dig, sort of think about people it. Like always, on, on election people always day, forget about Dig. Dig. Yes. Dig was actually the first one. And Dig, because, Dig yeah. was and Dig and Fark and others, but particularly Dig right. was really important. Um in by you know, by the time of the two thousand and eight election actually. But on the two, day of the two thousand and eight election, Barack Obama, who's the biggest Twitter account on Twitter at that point, tweets once. 
like, hey, remember to vote everybody. Like it's a very like secondary, tertiary communications method, even for like this politician whose campaign is very sophisticated about communicating. It's not yet where anybody real where any real people are, basically. Um and then I mean in and I, I think in tech and it moved faster, but in politics, which is where I was kind of living, it was really like come the like healthcare fight of 2010, 2011. Suddenly, like I'm writing this blog that had been a blog that like, you know, people would hit refresh on all day because I would be feeding new information in. And, and that was very fun for me. Um, at some point, I can just kind of, I can both see in the traffic because I actually had a engineer at Politico like secretly embed an extreme tracker, if you remember that, those and into my um, footer. Yep. So I had my own little like window, live window to traffic. And that, and I could see in that, and I could just kind of like intuit that the people who had been hitting refresh on my blog were now on Twitter. And the sources were on Twitter, and the sub people I was covering were on Twitter, and the other journalists were on Twitter. And when I broke a story, because I'm basically addicted to scoops, and when I broke some news, the thing that I wanted to do was watch it travel around Twitter, and if it was, and watch people share it. And it was a bit real. And, and the blog started to feel like this kind of legacy space where ah, you got to feed the beast, like writing stories for the newspaper because you have space to fill. And the real conversation was on Twitter for for news. Um, and yeah, and, and I think, so when, when Jonah Peretti kind of approached me in 2011, I barely knew what BuzzFeed was. And when I looked at it, it made no sense to me. Um, but when he explained, and then my wife sort of re-explained to me that it, what it was, was not just lots of cats, but in fact, they'd been thinking really hard about what do people share on Facebook and in, in other places, but particularly Facebook and what they had concluded was lots of cats. Um, but this was a very sophisticated cat-based strategy. Um, like it was basically the same thing I was doing with news on Twitter. And in, in it, you were also starting to see flickers of news on Facebook. Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free, whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair for a limited time. Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions, 
and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again, and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramps also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramps save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. The, um, mentioning Jonah, so I don't know if people know this timeline really well, but Jonah came from the Huffington Post. You, you mentioned two people that also don't get a lot of credit for this era, which is Drudge and uh, Ariane Huffington and the whole Huffington Post thing, which again, you know, Drudge launches in the Clinton impeachment era, but, you know, Huffington Post launches prior to social media. So, but her whole strategy was to get her famous friends to to post blogs and things like this. But, um, but Jonah cracked the egg or, or 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 even before or as social is happening, Jonah is sort of reverse engineering virality at HuffPost before um, before launching BuzzFeed. Yeah, I mean, you know, right? Social the, the sort of social impulse on the internet precedes the big platforms, and the blogs were social. They had comments. We all the bloggers were kind of talking to each other Blog across roles, the internet, yeah. and. Um, I mean, when I would, I mean, the big move in blogs was I would like attack Ezra Klein and then I would email Ezra and say, hey, I just wrote this thing attacking you. But as you'll notice, like I linked really prominently. And if you wouldn't mind when you respond linking back to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so they, I think they were pretty sort of, there's this sort of proto-social web. The HuffPost comment section was a huge social space where people would just hang out and argue with each other and talk about politics. So there were these these bits of social media. Search engines mattered a lot. And Jonah had been, had really like immersed himself on in traffic on Huffington Post. He'd built, the, you know, everybody, there are these ubiquitous dashboards now with, um, you know, sort of charts where the line goes hopefully up and to the right. And you sort of see the orange space underneath filled in and the white space above not filled in with uh, clicks over time or whatever. And he designed the first of those, he and Paul Barry and Andrea Brianna um, designed that. And, um, and 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 sort of you know and there was sort of top secret data sources when they would investor when people would come into the office they would turn their screens to the wall because they didn't want to see people to see how they had like figured out how to quantify what they were doing but so he had been totally immersed in it and yes yeah, seen among other things the difference between what people like to say they wanted which was like serious stories about the Iraq war and even like cele- you know George Clooney's musings and what they in fact wanted which was trashy stories about celebrities. It's it's interesting because what you're also describing is just um, analytics and data coming coming into the modern era for for writers and and, and journalists and stuff like um, a thought on that as sort of like the business model like Denton yeah I'm, I'm good friends with like Joel Johnson who was w- with Denton and his I think yeah. EIC for a while like this idea that you hire hungry kids. 25 years old, pay them a dollar per post or whatever, you know. Um, but then also they have insight into what works. So they're incentivized. You know, the pejorative now is you're, you're writing for clicks, clickbait and stuff like that. But 
also this concept of the audience is in real time shaping what you're saying and reporting on because you can get in real time feedback in terms of what gets traction and what again before it going viral but like literally this is the thing that i can see gets a reaction yeah sorry i mean that is that is the case what's the question oh the question the question is i guess okay the question i was i was poking towards was this being the first generation of journalists and writers that have those tools right. at hand while they're doing the work, as opposed to going into the newsroom, uh, writing up an article and having it published the next day in the paper or on the news at, at, at 630 at night, you know, and getting the ratings or something like that. Like the, the, the fact that the writers in real time have the sort of business insight and feedback that it used to be only the management had. Yeah, I mean, I think that that varied a lot, and it de depended on, you know, individual writers, sort of which screws we had loose, and what management wanted. And one thing that Nick and Jonah both did was really like try to manage through the data and and say basically your job is to not to write things that I feel proud about or that I like, but to hit these numbers, which you know push you toward. I mean, it pushes you in a bunch of different directions, but certainly not toward like, you know, deeply reported investigations. Um, and, and in, and in fact, in two directions in particular, like Nick steered his people to follow the data toward, you know, saying things nobody else would say towards snark towards sometimes kind of cruelty or sort of exposure. And Jonah had this totally different theory, which was also true for a time, which was that in the increasingly kind of like public space of the internet, the things people would share would be these super positive things, would be, you know, a fundraiser for earthquake victims or cute memes. Yeah, but like the the, the chapter about Jezebel is really interesting too, because, and I, I think we'll come back to this in a second, but with with both Jonah and Nick, there is a there's a sense of taste, there's a sense of instinct instinctual there's an audience here, there's something that's underserved. Like Jezebel has started because, you know, women's publishing targeting women is a huge business that was underserved at that point in time in terms of online digital. So like Nick Denton just senses that out intuitively as opposed to, we were just talking about the data, but he's, there's no data that would tell him there's a, a feminist blog could work. He just has a sense that it could. Yeah, I mean, I think he was looking at categories of media. I mean, I think the degree to which, to some degree, these I mean, these folks, it wasn't de novo. Like, there's there is media out there, and and Nick, in particular, by then was really in the advertising business, and he was looking at how fat Vogue and Vanity Fair, or maybe not even Elle, and you know, Glamour and Redbook were with advertisements, and was I think thinking in a fairly straightforward way, like, oh, like I could would love to get a slice of the beauty product advertising business. Um. To bring it back to you, uh, we mentioned you getting recruited by um, Jonah for BuzzFeed News. Um, what was what was your vision for BuzzFeed News? What were your marching orders? What was the remit in terms of what it was going to be and, and the role it would serve for, for BuzzFeed? Yeah, I mean, I think at first it was actually very clear, and this would seem less clear, but it was, we're going to build a news organization for the social, for the social web. That's going to be about, you know, it's going to be rooted in the distribution of the social web. So we're going to do, we're only going to do stories that people on Twitter or Facebook want to talk about. We're going to, um, 
and and we're going to try to kind of answer the questions people have on Twitter, like a variety of story that was so fun for me that like was like somebody would tweet, you know, Israel just bombed. There would be like a New York Times article saying that Israel had just bombed Lebanon, say, and somebody would tweet like, I wonder what Hezbollah thinks. And of course, now like Hezbollah is like on Twitter and we'll just tell you gladly. But there was this gap where like, well, like one of my reporters had the number for their spokesman in Beirut and would call them and he would tell them. And then you would put that on Twitter and people would be like, wow, like that's the answer to our question. And it wasn't always that literal, but there was a sense that there was this big community that cared about news that had lots of questions and that reporters had the tools to answer them. Um, and so that was actually a big part of how we thought about it. And yeah, and then scoops were, which was the thing I liked doing was also the thing that was most guaranteed to blow up Twitter. And so, you know, I think, you know, at some higher level, I think our initial goal was really to sort of build Buzzfeed's brand and, and to build an audience that would like come to the front page when there was news that didn't just see the site as kind of something to do when you were bored, but to kind of, Elevate. I mean, because the other thing about that era that, again, like I think you've forgotten, is there was this other category of meme sites. Nine Gag was the biggest. Mm -hmm. There's one called Mm Break.com, and they were like they a cheeseburger, and like they were kind of had become. They were starting to be seen as essentially spam and garbage, and these big platforms, which were Jonah realized becoming the distribution layer of the internet, were were not going to distribute them. They were and and we're going to cut them off, and it was very important that BuzzFeed not be one of those. Okay, that comes back to this idea of like taste versus data, and yeah. I, I thought of this. There's two different sections in your book um, that when I was reading it this morning, I was like, "There's there's something interesting here." So um, at at one point, um, you know, uh, when early on in BuzzFeed, uh, uh, Zuckerberg and Peretti have discussions about maybe, hey, maybe Facebook will just buy uh, BuzzFeed. And I think he was trying to basically acquire um, Jonah. This is like when Facebook's only valued at like $100 billion or whatever. And and Jonah makes this joke that like, well, um, we're adding $10 billion in value to Facebook right now at a $100 billion valuation. So you should, I'll, I'll only take $5 billion and you'll be getting a deal. Um, and it, it is a joke and, and the, the, the tie up doesn't happen. But so again, so there's that, which is Jonas saying to Zuckerberg, I'm adding value to your raw numbers, right? So I'm positing that while Jonah has the insight about um, what makes things go viral, like what he sees in the analytics, he's still coming at it from a sense of taste. The second incident that made me think of this is after the dress happens, um, I believe, I think it's you and Jonah are at a party at Facebook headquarters and um, you, you're, you're talking to Adam Mosseri and you get the sense you you guys are like proud that the dress thing happened and it blew up and you get the sense that he thought of it as no that's a problem because we didn't understand how that happened so that facebook is looking at these things as pure numbers as engineers and someone like jonah understands the numbers but he's not thinking of it as an engineer he's thinking of it again with taste and other things beyond the raw numbers involved does that make sense yeah, and I'm sorry. The first example was was when um, when Jonah is saying to Zuck, "Yeah, we're adding value to Facebook," but Zuck clearly is like, "No, the platform is the value, not right. what you are doing on the platform." 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, in both of those cases, I actually think the Facebook people, you know, and I think often when media and political people look at Facebook, it's sort of like we're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. And we think that they're thinking about politics or thinking about culture and media, and really they're thinking about engagement metrics. And and it's not just taste. It's like the notion that there is a thing called media or, or that their professionally created content is in any way different from any other random thing with the engagement you can measure. Um, you know, just I think it was not how they see the world. And I think, I mean, to me, because going back, I mean, particularly in this particular moment when some of these companies, including BuzzFeed, are really struggling and looking at how much money investors put into them in the aughts and in the early 2010s, you're like, what were we thinking? What were they thinking? Like what? And and this is a lot of in the book that I go into also, but specifically what we what they were thinking and what we were thinking was that this was a, in some ways, rerun of the 1980s when the cable wires went down. And, you know, people built this new distribution system called cable, but they weren't gonna just put public access on every channel, even though you probably could have gotten people to produce free shows. They um they, you know, they essentially created an economic environment in which CNN, ESPN, MTV could build huge businesses and be, and, and, and which meant that like, you know, the cable company was having to pay out a huge percentage of what it brought in to these content providers. But like, that was the deal they made. That was the, a, a balance that they struck and built for them a business that, you know, is going into its like fourth decade as a very prosperous business. Our thesis was that these social platforms, and I think we thought there'd be more, I thought there'd be more. I didn't think it would basically mm. be Facebook and then a bunch mm -hmm. of tiny things, mm -hmm. but Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, stumble upon snap, whoever that they would similarly be, be competing with each other. For sort of like the, the, the broadcast networks were right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that eventually as the medium matured, they'd start to pay for high quality content and you can sort of both talk, like there are lots of reasons that didn't happen. They tried at times, but I think if you, and you can also argue about would it ever have been a good idea for them, you know, but if you look at them now, as they sort of fade and unravel, I don't think it, I don't think it's crazy to think they made a bit of a mistake there. Yeah, I, you know, reading the the chapter about the time when Disney comes in and, you know, this is when, you know, BuzzFeed is really sort of really riding the tiger and and they offer what was it? 600 million dollars or I'm reading yeah. it and I'm, I'm like screaming, "Take the money, take the money." Oh my god. But yeah. but okay, so here's cuz I, I I'm going to come back to the idea that we're kind of getting towards which is the platforms are always capable of rug pulling you, but I feel like so there's this moment in, let's call it 2013, 2014, when legacy media is enamored with this. Maybe you guys have cracked the code. Maybe this is their entree into digital to you know make it be like succession a little bit. Um, but then what happens is at this exact same moment, you have VCs enamored with this, thinking that this is this this is cracking the code for taking media to scale. Um, and so, <laughs> do you feel like there was a double sort of like? Uh, it's not stab in the back, but you, you sort of, you sort of, people in the space sort of were like, well, the the, the legacy media is always there, and they're going to pay up, but also VCs are going to offer us bigger visions and bigger dreams, and so at that moment, it seems like everything's going in one direction, and the biggest pots of money in the world, the smartest people are all saying it's going in one direction, and so it's like you're led towards this model 
that was probably always unsustainable, but it seemed perfect at the time. Yeah, right. I mean, right. The same reason for the same reason that Disney tried to bite us, we really thought we were had a lot of value and that the wind was at our back. And mm-hmm. the venture capitalists thought it for the same reason. I, I guess I do think you read a lot of stuff, particularly from the ex Gawker people, because yeah, I don't know, because they spent a lot of time at Gawker that will say this was inevitable. It was all stupid and doomed. And maybe that's true, but I, I think it's obviously also easier to say in hindsight. And I think there were a lot of like contingent choices made along the way, particularly by the platform companies. I mean, ultimately the decision-making power was in Silicon Valley and that it wasn't, it wasn't totally obvious that, that everything, that, that the platforms would evolve the way they would. It also, there was then this overlay of the toxicity of news in the Trump Mm -hmm. era that, you know, maybe we could have seen coming or should have seen coming, but didn't. Um, Just to put a bow on this, this VC idea. I mean, like it, it, it is sort of the, there's investing fads, you know, Web3 people are having right. trouble raising money right now because AI is the hotness and who knows what it'll be in, in 18 months or whatever. But the, it's also the problem that a lot of startups encounter, which is if you take, if you get the foie stuffed down your throat and you take that giant bag of money, like you're only on one path. There's only one way to go and you, you fundamentally can't necessarily turn the aircraft carrier around at that point. Um, well, I mean, these are independent companies, and they can disappoint their investors. But certainly, the de- you know the deal op- eyes wide open with the VCs, and I, and I mean, the people taking the VCs' money are not the victims here. Like, I don't, I don't think it's appropriate to be like. I mean, ultimately, if anybody is the victim in a situation that an investment goes wrong, it's the investor, right? Not the, not the investee. But it's certainly like a kind of a tacit deal that you're like racing for scale. You are not trying to slow down, create a you know ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent margin media business that is sustain modest, sustainable, functional. You're racing for massive, massive scale, and with all the risks that that entails. And there were times at, at BuzzFeed where you know there was a very smart guy named Ari Shadati. I don't know if you ever bounced off him, a mm-hmm. business development guy who um who'd been at Tumblr, who like he and I spent a lot of time trying to sort of build what would ultimately have been modest profit, you know, modest, ideally profitable, but, you know, not scale businesses around news, whether that was some kind of subscription thing or whether it was um, these sort of production deals with Netflix and with um, with Twitter. But, but the sort of logic of the investment structure and the logic of the business was to race toward just massive, massive scale. So the other rug pool, you know, that that people famously talk about all, you know, if you build your business on a platform and the platform decides it's, it's priorities are elsewhere. Like the closest I ever got to working in media was the year I spent at Ted, which was, um, 2016. And I remember, you know, them I coming regret to inform you, but you're, you're kind of working in media right now. But go ahead. I, well, that's true. Uh, that, you know, right. Um, so <laughs> I do have to remind myself of that. Um, the, I remember them coming to us and being like, quick, what can we put on video? Because Facebook wants us to do Facebook live video, right? And then at mm-hmm. the same time, taking meetings where it's like, okay, what can we do on Amazon's got this Alexa thing? And obviously, we're an audio uh, medium as well. Uh, the podcast is great. And so, one of the things that is for media companies, all of these tech companies are always have these new products that are promising the distribution that always promises to be the holy grail, right? Um so it's also, I've also thought that, you know, when people bemoan the fact that um, 
oh, don't build your business on top of somebody else's business because you don't own it. I'm like, but no, the, the point of being a startup is you have to find where your business model is. Um, and, you know, it, it, you, you, could, you could say that if you build your business off of advertising full stop, you don't really control your destiny, right? So I'm, I'm curious what you think about this idea of the, the original sin was believing that the Facebooks of the world were the key to a long-term sustainable business model. I, mean, I think in retrospect, that is obviously true. But it also meant it also was because of a bunch of specific decisions that the companies made and because of ways that the culture broke that I'm not sure were totally foreseeable. Yeah, I think that people like to draw these sort of smug generalizations, right? Like that subscriptions are the only way that and that don't build your business on somebody else's business. But I don't know, ask ESPN about how it was to build their business on top of cable. It was it was fine, and so and con- and and the sort of pendulum, you know, content companies throughout history have built their, you know, the movie studios built their business on the distributors. I mean, it's it's not unusual to have distribution and creation in separate businesses. It just the internet didn't pan out that way. Um, again, I mean, obvious, like we were obviously wrong in that bet, and I'm not suggesting otherwise. But I don't think it was like. Yeah, I don't. I guess the question is, were we delusional? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would argue, um, which is a not reasonable delusional. question. Um, yeah. So, so, and and I think, and I think there is. I mean, this is something I feel like I've learned in the news business, which is like a subset of all these other businesses. That people love to get really ideological about revenue. Like, if you're in the advertising business, you're going out there saying that like it, it, democracy relies on freely available information. And if you are in the subscription business, you say that you see that the sort of authentic connection to the audience is what makes it all worth doing. But like, this is people talking their book. The subscription business was working a lot better for for like until maybe last year than other businesses. And so suddenly there was this conventional wisdom that it was the sole business anyone should be in. And now it's people have realized how hard it is to get incremental subscribers and like the advertising business is sort of back, but now we're heading into a recession and the ad business is bad. And like, surviving media businesses are ones you typically that have this very boring idea that you should have a bunch of different revenue streams to try to manage them carefully, um, which is certainly where, where I am now. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. One password. One password combines industry leading security with award winning design to bring private, secure and user friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. One password secures every sign in to save you time and money. Any device, any time. One password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi Fi password. One password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon, because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepasswordcom slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride, onepasswordcom slash ride. 
When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID, and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation, where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse. That laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about Semaphore at the end here, but um let's 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 sort of come bring it to a landing with with talking about BuzzFeed news and this moment. Um you yeah. know, you, you had a, a piece, you know, about BuzzFeed News, I think it was last week that I quoted from uh, those of us lucky enough to be building from scratch in this new moment will have to realize that the old way of thinking about news based in text on the World Wide Web and distributed primarily on social media has passed. Like this, are we at an inflection point here where the, the 20 year period you're writing about in this book, we don't know what the new thing is. Maybe it's, it's just TikTok and videos and stuff like that. But do you feel as someone that is doing a, a, a media company right now that this, we're, we're either already in or inflecting to a, a new era for media? Yeah, it sure feels that way to me. And maybe I'm a little ahead of the game. Like maybe Facebook has more tricks up its sleeve. Maybe Twitter has more tricks up its sleeve. But it just feels to me that like the nature of these social networks, which is that they're places you go to hang out with your friends, makes them just incredibly fragile. It's just in their nature to be fragile. And once you start kicking at them and bad things start happening to them and people start going other places, it's like a bar or a club. Like it's possible that a new owner can bring people back, but mostly they left and they're somewhere else and not for any like logical reason, not because the latency is slower or something like that. They're social phenomena. Um, and I think people also, you know, if it was so cool in the wake of the sort of disasters of late 20th century mainstream media to see, to be able to say, wow, I can go read the guardian, you know, I can read Le Monde. I can read, like, I can see what people are saying all over the world on the internet. And now I think people rightly feel like, at least I feel like I'm just drowning in voices from all over. It's total chaos. And what I want is somebody who can, you know, who can sort of pull this stuff back together in a coherent way. I mean, I think it's partly why audio is working really well right now. I think it's the newsletters, like the ones we do. I think it's in-person events do some of that. And But so I think like the pendulum just sort of swings. I, I sometimes get asked um, by folks, like, are you ever worried? <laughs> like, you know, uh, Vice might be about to go away. BuzzFeed News. You know, are you ever worried, Brian, that someday you'll never, <laughs> you won't have enough sources for your show? Um and I always say no, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to turn that question on you. Is, is my instinct right that journalism is some sort of weird <sighs> impulse that will always exist, whether there's a good business model for it or not? 
No, I think you are wrong. I mean, I think the mm. business model matters a lot. So, you know, I think, I think it's just, but you do need to sort of like when you, cause there are these, I mean, I think there are probably more reporters covering national politics than there have ever been. I think the tech and finance press are full of people and are growing and there are new trade publications cropping up. Um, you know, there, there are lots of spaces where there are probably more, more journalists. There's a better business than there's ever been. And digital media does allow, um, cheaper to, you know, it's just cheaper to start something and reach people and you don't need to buy a printing press and stuff like that. Um, but the number of journalists in the United States and other places keeps going down. And just the overwhelmingly main reason for that is the collapse of local news. And it's a disaster. It is, you know, we've all sort of priced into the market that it's collapsing, but like it's still collapsing. Gannett is still laying people off all the time. The New York Daily News is still sort of three quarters of the way through a death spiral. And so like, and, and there was, you know, and it's partly because in the U.S. for sort of particular historical reasons, these metro newspapers were just incredible businesses in the 20th century. And it's just totally unclear that there's some model that will ever restore anything remotely like that. And that does mean, I mean, it's sort of the base layer of news. It's the stuff closest to home in a literal sense. It's the sort of, I don't know. So I think on one hand, if what, you know, if what we're talking about is people who want to like, like me, like bloviate about the early blogosphere, I feel like there will be lots of us and, and, and lots of webs and lots of platforms on which to do it. I think for other things like covering city hall and covering local courts and stuff, I mean, yeah, there's just, it's a disaster. Well, I, I want to be optimistic because there's always crazy people like you that do crazy things like start new media companies. <laughs> um, so let me take my, my one stab at doing almost journalism here and, and ask how Semaphore is going and, and uh, what you've learned from this first year. I'm intrigued that you don't think that like what you do is journalism. That's 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 another conversation. But I remember. I'll tell you what you want to know is, why. Yeah. It's because I I ha- my family is all professional journalists like that went to college for it that were professors that like you know ran the communication school at the University of Georgia and since I didn't do that I never feel oh. like I'm qualified. Oh, I don't think this, yeah that's uh, it's not a longer conversation yeah but, conf- yeah. but confusing um, to me so. Um, yeah, I think what you're saying is that when you talk about interesting stuff, it's not journalism. Then when you ask like mm. boring, ticky tacky questions, that's journalism. Anyway, um, Semaphore is going well. I mean, it is as you say, like it's this moment of change, and mostly like change in what people want, right? Like, I mean, it's, this isn't like about this isn't fundamentally like a technical thing we're talking about. It's people, and 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 I think people feel like massively overwhelmed by the amount of incoming they're getting, and also don't really know who to trust, and are increasingly, you know, for a million social reasons, like more connected to individuals than to institutions. And so it's a good time to try to say like, okay, how, how do you start from scratch? Like you do build around the voices of individual reporters in a, in a very, very transparent, like we're very sort of obsessed with this sort of transparent format where you see, make, make really clear what's the news and what's your opinion. And, um, and you try to bring in sources from all over so that the reader doesn't feel like they probably trust you, but they should probably Google 17 different stories about the same topic and try to triangulate what really happened, which is like a very annoying thing that everyone feels they have to do. All right. Let's end with one of those, uh, cheese ball questions. That's the easiest question for a book tour, which is, um, why the book? Why now? But actually specifically, why now while you're also launching Semaphore? 
Well, I wrote the book while I was at the Times and, yeah. you know, both was writing once a week and also it was in you know, the pandemic. So I just, just had time to reflect, but really like, because I was so curious, because, because I felt, although I had been on the margins of this scene that we talked about that I joined midstream in 2012 and heard all these stories about the good old days. Cause you know, whenever you get to a scene, like the first thing people tell you is that you should have been there last year. And so I had a lot of that feeling of, I guess, sort of FOMO or yeah, of, of having missed out. And and also curiosity about like this stuff that we were right in the middle of like where where did where did all this come from and what was the deal and the answer really was that it was these individuals in a place at a time and a bunch of really weird interesting people making specific decisions that you know that really shaped this moment we're in now and I guess that's you know that's why I hope people take a look at it. So again, I was so glad to see this book come because when my when I did my book, I had to excise a whole chapter about. Gawker and about the early blogging period because it just didn't fit. The book was too long, et cetera. And it didn't fit the narrative of, oh, this is how the internet happened. But the key thesis of that book was if you don't tell the kids coming up how A led to B led to C, eventually they don't know. The stuff that you and I or anyone does, if you don't preserve that institutional memory for the next cohort coming up, it doesn't get preserved, right? And so, like, I, I've been waiting for someone to do this book. Um, and so I'm just so thrilled. I, I haven't even, I only scratched the surface of it. I'm going to read it this weekend. I, I cannot recommend enough, uh, traffic by, uh, Ben Smith. The, it's, it's largely about Gawker and, and Buzzfeed, but it's just this whole era that, um, I'm glad someone finally uh, wrote a book about. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for having me on. 